Thank you, Sid. If you have your Bibles, perhaps you can just open them to the very first page of the Bible. Uh, we're going to read Genesis 1, 1 and 2. We're starting a new series. It's slightly earlier than I had planned, but we will come back to 1 Peter chapter 5, which is our last chapter of 1 Peter at a later date. It's quite relevant to pastors and elders in the church, so I thought I'd do it at a time which is more relevant to the, to the teaching of that chapter, and I'm going to start early our series, my ser- the series on Genesis, wonderful book in the Bible, and at least it's easy to find, isn't it? So that's good. And uh, the first, I, I, I actually went to a Hebrew scholar this week to make sure I could, you know, I actually could say the first few words correctly. But uh, the first words of the Bible in Hebrew are Breshit bara elhohim et ha shemain vihet ha aretz. And it's, it said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words in English. And in Hebrew, seven words. And there's so much more than just an introduction to a chapter. There's so much more than the introduction to the first book of the Bible or the first five books of the Bible. These seven Hebrew words introduce the entire history of the universe. And they lay the first bricks in the foundation for an entire way of seeing, understanding and inhabiting the world we live It's not an exaggeration to say that these two verses that I'll read in a few moments, or even the seven words of the Hebrew Bible, are essential if you're to understand what the world is, who you are in the world, and who God is in relationship to us and his creation. Genesis 1 verse 1 is crucially important, not only for what it says, but for what it does not say. There is nothing about God standing in need of something or someone. As if God created because he was somehow in need. He doesn't say that. You might say that God enters into the story in verse 1. But that too is incorrect. No, the story enters the life of God in verse 1. There is nothing in verse 1 about some pre-existent matter that existed alongside of God from which he shaped and formed the earth. God does not enter the story. He predates the story because the story decreed in eternity, the one we read about in the Bible, the one that you and I inhabit, is a story that has as its author and its object and its centre, our eternal, immutable, perfect, loving God. So even before there was a beginning, there was God. So Genesis is about the beginning of everything except God. He never started. He always has been, always is, always will be. That is what it means to be from everlasting to everlasting. That's the definition of eternity. 
We may inherit eternal life, that is, life that will go on forever, but we do not, in our very nature, we aren't marked by eternity without beginning and end. All of us have a beginning. Everything that you inhabit in this universe has a beginning. God has no beginning. There never was when God was not. There is nothing else and no one who compares with him. God is the great I am. God made everything. God made day and night, land and water, fruit, vegetables, sun and moon, swimming things, flying things, creeping things, everything from hummingbirds to human beings. In creation, the power and the beauty and the goodness of our invisible God was made visible. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. And Genesis, the title, comes to us by way of the Latin Vulgate, but it really is a transliteration of the Greek word Genesis, which means origin or beginning. And it translates the first Hebrew word of the Bible, Breshit, Genesis, beginning. Genesis is also the beginning of the New Testament. In Greek, in Matthew 1, verse 1, it says the book of the genealogy, but it's the Genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew is tying together the beginning of the New Covenant literature with the Old Covenant literature. They both begin with Genesis. And famously, John 1, much more noticeably, begins with the same, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John has such high Christology that when everyone familiar with the Bible would expect, in the beginning, God, John says, in the beginning, the Word. Because the Word was with God and the Word was God. A new beginning with Jesus. But here, at the first word of the Bible, we're introduced to the beginning of everything. Let's just read the first two verses together. Let's pray as we come to the reading of God's word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these words, so well known to us, but I thank you that every word is breathed out by you. Help our study of Genesis, we pray, for your glory. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. May God bless the reading of his holy word. This sermon in three headings, the structure of Genesis, the themes of Genesis, and in verses 1 and 2, what they tell us about God. So the structure, how is Genesis laid out? And what got me on this was when we did it in our Bible study about, I don't know how long ago now, maybe 15 to 18 months ago, when we were looking at the life of Joseph. I don't know whether you remember that together. And we, we came across this, that the book of Genesis is marked out by ten toldoths. I don't know whether you remember that, the ten toldoths in Genesis. Toldoth is the Hebrew word translated as generation. There are ten deliberate generations using the word toldoth in Genesis. Genesis 2 verse 4, it says the creation of man and women, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So that's the generations, the first 
Hebrew word toldoth is the generations of the heaven and the earth. So chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2 verse 3 is a prologue and then we're introduced to the first generation. Then we have Genesis 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then we have Genesis 6 verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. So we have Genesis 2 verse 4, the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then we have Genesis 5 verse 1, the generations of Adam. Genesis 6 verse 9, the generations of Noah. Genesis 10 verse 1, the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Genesis 11 verse 10, uh, these are the generations of Shem. So we have 10 verse 1, the sons of Noah, chapter 11 verse 10 of Shem. Then Genesis 11 verse 27, the generations of Terah, and Terah fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Genesis 11 verse 37 is the generations of Terah. Genesis 25 verse 12 is the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. And then the same chapter, Genesis 25 verse 19, the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And then we jump to Genesis 36 verses 1 and 9, the generations of Esau. And Genesis 37 verse 2, the generations of Jacob. So they're the ten. First of all, heaven and earth, chapter 2. Chapter 5, Adam. Chapter 6, Noah. Chapter 10, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Chapter 11, verse 10, Shem. 27, Terah. 25, 12, Ishmael. 25, 19, Isaac. 36, Esau. And 37, Jacob. Ten generations. Now, Genesis covers more than ten generations, but these ten are marked out deliberately in ten told-off sections. Five is followed by a narrative. The first with creation. The third with the flood. The sixth, Terah, is all about Abraham. The eighth, Isaac. And the tenth, Jacob. So, they are five generations followed by a narrative. Five of the ten are followed by a narrative. And then five are followed by genealogies. Two are vertical, ten-generation genealogies, obviously stylized. Stylized does not mean not true, it just means pulled out, so there is ten. And the other three are horizontal, segmented genealogies. That means they go through the various children and their descendants. Five of the ten toldoths are followed by narrative, five by genealogy. And these generations are not mini-biographies, they're chosen for a specific purpose and are given a specific location in the book. Moses is making a theological point with these ten generations. He's seeking to fly over the mass of humanity in these early generations on the planet and then zoom in theologically along God's redemptive line. Now, some of that line goes to Esau and Ishmael. 
not the chosen line, but most of it is the chosen line for God's plan of redemption. And each of those generations introduces a new section. With about half of the sections, the narrative isn't even about the patriarch that is mentioned in the heading, but about his offspring. So, for example, the whole point of the generation that told off of Tirah is about Abraham. And Jacob's told off is about Joseph and Judah. So this is the most deliberate way, and maybe helpful way, for you to understand how Genesis is structured. Ten told-off sections. And I'll highlight these as we go through it. But a second way to look at the structure of Genesis, this is the structure, you've got those ten generations. A second way is very interested in the different lands in which the action is focused. In chapters 1 through 11, we are, know from some of the boundary markers in the Garden of Eden that we're in the Middle East, that will be later known as the Chaldeans. Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, or Babylonia. Chapters 1 to 11. Chapters 12 to 36 is in Palestine, Canaan, which would be later the Promised Land, Israel. And 37 to 50, Joseph ends up in Egypt. So the, you know, so the geographical location of Genesis is in Babylonia, in Palestine, in Egypt. So the action in the last book, the chapters is in Egypt with the family travelling from Canaan to Egypt. So moving in these three major locations, what does this tell us about the Bible? What does this tell us about the storyline of the Bible? It means the history is not just a history about Israel, but world history. Genesis was the first book which was written for God's people coming together as a nation. So yes, it is written to Israel to tell them where they come from, but it's not just telling this family or this people It's telling the history of everything. That God is the God of all things, who made all things, and he will bless all nations through Abraham. The other thing that you just hear in Babylonia, Israel, Egypt. These are the three major locations of the book of Genesis, and they're the three main locations for the rest of the Bible. Certainly for the rest of the Old Testament. Israel, Egypt, captivity in Babylon and the interplay of these three regions Israel Babylon Egypt from the storyline for the whole Bible especially for the Old Testament is that they provide the theological underpinning for bondage redemption disobedience exile punishment forgiveness restoration salvation so it is key that we're introduced to the locations Babylon Israel, Egypt. And another way to look at the structure of Genesis is to look at family. One-fifth of the book, chapters 1 through 11, is about cosmic family, about humanity in general. And four-fifths of the book, chapter 12 through 50, is about the chosen family. Eleven chapters to move through 20 generations, maybe more, if they don't name every generation but 11 chapters to move through at least 20 generations, 39 chapters to move through three. Have you ever thought that there's one chapter 
on the fall and a third of the Genesis is about Joseph. There's more verses given to the story about Dinah than the creation of Adam and Eve. The story of Judah and Tamar is as long as the creation account. Why has God ordered it this way? Well, one reason is that this is the story about where God's people began. It's not just about the first book in the Bible. It's the first book in a five-part series, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis and Exodus go together. Exodus begins where Genesis left off, when there arose a pharaoh in Egypt. So it's zooming in on where we came from, Israel, and we inhabit that history, where we as God's people come from. But the other reason for this focus on this one family is even more meta than that. The biblical plotline has four parts. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, recreation, consummation. And the overwhelming majority of the Bible is about that third part. And that should tell us something about God, about sin, about salvation. Think about it. The creation of the universe, two chapters. The fall, chapter three. Chapters 4 to 11 is about how the sin spread across the earth, the floods, and the sort of new creation. Doesn't mean that people are any better. So we'll even give the fall 3 through 11, nine chapters. How many chapters in the Bible tell us about recreation? Revelation 21 and 22. And the other 1,176 chapters are about redemption. So creation, fall, recreation, almost all of the Bible is about redemption. How do we get people who are created in God's image, who rebelled against him to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth? That's the storyline of the Bible. That's the storyline of Genesis. I hope that's helpful to you, the structure, the ten told-offs, the three different geographical locations and focusing in on this family. Secondly, themes. The first theme is seed, Genesis 3.15. Trace through Cain and Abel and the rest of the book. You have two rival kingdoms at work in the world. Genesis 3 through Revelation 20 is a description of the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 gives us that first announcement of the gospel, that there will come one from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So the promise of the seed. That um, the seed, this child, who will come to crush the head of the serpent. Seed is a theme. Land is a theme. In Genesis Genesis 2, paradise. And the rest of the book is about the twists and turns finding their way to the promised land. In chapters 1 through 11, we read of a people with a land being expelled from it. Adam and Eve are expelled. The people in the days of Noah, the land has to be wiped clean because of sin. It is prefiguring later when Israel will be shipped to Babylon because of their sin. 
It's laying the foundation that the story of Genesis and the story of the Bible is that God has given this perfect gift to us and we squander it and we are expelled. So how do we come back? God is going to prepare a land. And in fact, sometimes in Genesis, when you have the translation earth, that word I said at the beginning, ha-haretz, it's the exact same word translated as land. He created the land. He formed the land. And for a people in particular who would have close affinity with the land. So land is a theme. Alienation is a theme. Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden. Cain is a wanderer. Noah is confined to a boat. Abraham is removed from his homeland. Jacob is alienated from Eden. Joseph is an alien in Egypt. And the book ends with the chosen family as aliens in Egypt. And this overarching theme brings two interlocking ideas. God's promise is fulfilled through God's providence. God promises in Genesis over a dozen times, I will bless you. The nations will be blessed through you. I will give you land. I will give you offspring. The entire book is God's gracious initiative to reveal his glory and to bless his people. 19 times in Genesis, we find the promise of descendants. 10 times the promise of relationship. 13 times the promise of land. 17 times alluding to one of these promises. Abraham, the first time God speaks to him, after telling him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, he only speaks of what he will do for him. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless the nations through you. And the last time God speaks to Abraham, in Genesis 22, he does the same. He promises to bless him. The first word to Jacob in chapter 28 is a promise. The last word to Jacob in chapter 46 is a promise. Four times Jacob encounters a theopony, that is, a God of God appearing. And Jacob, for all the ways he can be a conniving trickster, God in these theopanies never speaks to Jacob of his unethical behaviour. Each time he comes to Jacob with promises. It is right and it is good that we learn the stories of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As long as we realise that the book isn't a collection of person vignettes, we should draw from them as examples the New Testament tells us to do that. But I want you to see that the book of Genesis is God's promises being fulfilled through God's providence. And actually, if you try and make the patriarchs and that family an example for you, you'll find many more occasions when they are not the example than occasions when they are. Abraham and Isaac lie about their wives. Sarah laughs at God's promise. Lot's wife turns to a pillar of salt. Jacob is a manipulator. Rachel helps him. Laban is a cheat. Joseph is boastful. His brothers are jealous and sell him into slavery. Simeon and Levi slaughter the Shechemites. 
Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law. And that's the good side of the family. They're the goodies. So please don't turn Genesis into a book of heroes. Showing us with great courage what it is to live for God. Let us see Genesis as a book, the story about God's promise. About God's initiative. About God's follow through. About God's care and blessing. That's the theme of Genesis. That God's promises are fulfilled through God's providence. And that should give us great encouragement for the days that we live in. That God's promises are fulfilled through God's providence. So we've seen together... We've seen together that Genesis is structured in a certain way. We've seen the Toldoths. We've seen the geographical location. We've seen the family, the introduction of the chosen family. And then we've seen some themes together. We've we've looked at these themes together of seed, land, alienation, coming together in God's promises being fulfilled through God's providence. And in our few minutes remaining, I want to look at verses 1 and 2 and two things we see about God. Two things that we see about God. And if, I, and if you want to, I, this is what I would like you to take away, these two things about God. First of all, God is creator. We cannot overstate the importance the Bible gives to the revelation of God as creator. If God is not the creator of all things, then you do not have the God as he is presented to us in the Bible. I used the second word I said after my newfound Hebrew, after Bereshit, was bara. And it is only ever used, at least in this form of God in the Bible. He is the one who creates. He is the only one who creates. He is not a territorial deity. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And the Bible repeats that over and over again so we do not forget it. We believe that God is the creator. He is the creator of heaven and earth. Nehemiah 9 verse 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Why does God repeat it time and time again? Because we need to believe it. We could multiply the expressions of praise in the Psalms, or many times in the New Testament, that God created heavens and earth. Acts 14, verse 15 Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Over and over again, we are reminded that God created. He is the creator God. And the distinction between God and the false so-called gods, the idols of this world, is that God made everything. The scientists with their graphs, the football players with their skill, 
the bankers with their money, the leaders, none of them created anything. God created the heavens and the earth. These idols cannot even speak, they cannot even walk, they cannot think. They're made from stone, they're made from wood, they're made from objects that God made. So verse 1 gives us the big picture that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth is a way of saying all things, visible and invisible. The things we see, the things we touch, and the things we cannot see, God created it. And the Christian faith is based on that, that God is the creator of all things, from sea to shining star. And then verse 2 tells us that the work of creation was not done in an instant. God's work of creation spans six days. Verse 2 is one of the best phrases in all of the Old Testament in Hebrew. The earth was without form and void. Toha wa bohu. It was without form and void. God made the heavens and the earth. But the earth, ha haretz, could be translated the land, was without form and void. And then we're going to see darkness and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the water. Sometimes this is described, people try and describe it like some kind of ooze or watery abyss or some kind of gaseous chaos in the universe. Or maybe God just made a great big lump of plasticine and now he's going to make it into something in six days. I do not think that that is what tohu wa bohu means. Rather, it is to suggest that the land was at first desolate and uninhabitable. Why do I think that? Well, there's one other time in the New Testament when these words are used together. And it's Jerob, sorry, the Old Testament, Jeremiah 4, verse 23, God's punishment over Judah for her sins and describing the desolation that will come upon Judah. Jeremiah 4.23, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form or void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. That is a description of God's punishment, that he's going to bring the land back, to the state before God shaped it and fashioned it. Now he does not mean in Jeremiah that he's going to obliterate it into a bazillion atoms, but rather it will no longer be fruitful. It will be like a desert. So in Genesis when we read that the earth was without form and void, I think that it means it is not yet ready. It is not yet inhabitable. It is not yet what God will make of it to fashion it and form it ultimately for the crown of his creation, human beings. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Deep sounds scary, but oftentimes in the New Testament, deep calls out to deep. However we are to understand this as canyons on the earth or great regions in the ocean, there is darkness over the face of the deep because God has not yet said, let there be light. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The divine Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. 
similar to Deuteronomy 32.11, describing an eagle brooding over her young. The imagery of the spirit brooding over the nest, as it were, of God's creation. God who created heavens and earth is plural, the three persons of the Trinity. God created the heavens and the earth. The spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And verse 3, the word, God created by the means of the spirit and the word. He spoke and it came into being. So what we have is not an abyss of gas or vapour or a cauldron of evil forces, but a land that is not yet productive and inhabitable. A desolate planet in need of cultivating. But what we see most importantly is that Genesis gives us the answer. Why something rather than nothing? And ultimately there are only two responses why something. You see, either the universe is a result of some free personal agent, or the universe creates itself. The Bible tells us that the universe did not create itself, but is the design of a free agent, namely God. Brothers and sisters, Genesis was not written in the 1870s to counteract Charles Darwin. From the first words of the Bible, in the beginning, one God created heavens and earth. So one thing to take away, the importance that God is the creator. And secondly, God is self-existent. Before we're introduced to God as creator, we're introduced to God in his aseity, which is a Latin theological term that means that God is of himself. He is independent. He depends on no one and on no thing. He is eternal. He is before all things and on, all, on him all things depend. We live our lives as if we are our own captain, as if things depend on us and our decisions. We are dependent on God for breath. In the beginning, God, he is distinct from creation. There was a time when physical matter was not, but there was a never a time when God was not. Genesis is implying what the rest of the Bible makes explicit, that God created ex nihilo out of nothing. Romans 4 verse 17. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Don't ever miss the importance of this, that God is the creator. God depends on no one. Well, what does this mean? First of all, think about the Israelites. The Israelites, who first received this story from Moses. Part of what it would reinforce to the Israelites, who were not known for being very obedient, was that the God we serve has every right to command of us obedience. That God who existed and has always existed when there was nothing to exist but God. God who is unlike us. One to whom we owe everything. One to whom we must give an account. But yet, as we see in the opening chapters of Genesis, 
This God, this God of whom we've just been learning this morning, interacts with us. God is transcendent. He is creator. He is self-existent. He is other. He is other. He is beyond us. It is the transcendence of God that makes his eminence, his nearness, his closeness so astounding. God is transcendent, but he is utterly concerned with your well-being. Even when you rebel against him. Genesis 1 verse 1 establishes three elements in understanding life and everything in it. God, man, the world. These are the foundational bricks. Who has the final say in your life? Genesis 1 verse 1 tells us what we need to know about man, God and the world. It tells us that, it tells us that God exists in and of himself. It's, it tells us that the world was made by God. It was not God, it exists outside of God, but is dependent on God. It tells us that man, because we were not at the creation, we must not be God. We are not eternal, but most of all, Genesis 1 verse 1 tells us about God. God is not man, God is not the world, God is without beginning. There is a God. God is transcendent. God exists in and of himself and he made all things. And God made the world and everything in it. And it exists utterly dependent upon God. But it is not itself God. So if we are to be Christians, and I mean real Christians, not just people who go to church, if we're to be real Christians in these trying times, I think it is good to be reminded of the God whom we serve. Revelation 4 verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our God and our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So when we come together to worship God, this is the God who we worship. He created all things. He is self-existent. He is God and we are not. May it be our portion that we really know God because he is the only one who's worthy of our praise. For his glory. Amen.